Galatians 5, 19 to 26. Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God. And Father, we do come again before you, bowing our hearts, asking that you would reign preeminent even in this moment as we look at your word. And would you, by your spirit, Lord, do what only you can do. Would you awaken our hearts? And would you let us gaze upon the beauty and the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever, we pray. In his name, amen. You may be seated. This is a, a good opportunity public opportunity for me to express my thanks and praise to God for his kindness in letting me and Mary Jean discover and become part of Cornerstone. We could not have imagined the rich blessings uh, that he had in store for us, Um, the encouragement, the growth, uh, the kindness, um, the love that we have uh, enjoyed Uh, with you. Uh, I get to travel an awful lot, and I see a lot of different churches, and I love coming home. Uh, There's no place like this home. (laughs) So it's just, and and as I've gone through that process of elder training, I've come to love uh, and respect those brothers. Um, I wish that you could Uh, hear them in some of those meetings as they labor on your behalf before the Lord. It's it's so precious, and I count myself uh, blessed to be among the shepherds that God has called to this particular body. Maybe like me, over the course of this series in Galatians, you've taken note of Paul's uh, emotions. I think I've heard it in Nate's voice as he preached. I've heard it in Tony's. Um, Paul is perplexed. He's angry. He's urgent. He's impassioned. In fact, at one point he says, I wish I could change my tone. Why is he so up in arms? Well, as we've discovered early on in the series, it's because agitators had invaded the churches of Galatia, throwing believers into confusion, undermining Paul's authority as an apostle, 
but most critically, jeopardizing the very gospel itself. Who were these people? Paul simply calls them in verse 12 of chapter 5, those who unsettle you, those who disturb you, those who turn you upside down. Judaizers is the name we've come to know. Those who wanted to Judaize those Gentile believers, teaching that salvation is not by faith alone, but salvation is by faith in Christ and by obedience to the law, and in their case, circumcision. Paul had the strongest of descriptions and words for this false teaching, and anyone who was falling under its spell, he called it deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ, a distortion of the gospel, man's gospel, a bewitching, cursed in chapter 3, verse 10, being severed from Christ, fallen from grace, chapter 5, verse 4. D.A. Carson suggests that there's always a tendency for people to think that their salvation is brought about by their own achievement, by something they do. The problem is that while the law makes people religious, it cannot truly reform us to be shaped into God's own character. May I say that again? While the law makes people religious, it cannot truly reform us to be shaped into God's own character. And that's because the law was never meant to do that. It was meant to lead us to Christ. It would ultimately be fulfilled by Christ, right, who met all the requirements of the law on our behalf. But it is the Spirit's work to expose our hearts and to transform us from the inside out. I know a little bit about this because it's part of my own story. Um, Some of you know that I am a missionary kid. I was raised in Argentina, At the age of four, um, my parents left the country with all five kids. I don't know who made the rule that missionaries have to have at least four or five kids, but we were part of that. At age five, we arrived in Argentina. At age seven, I was shipped off to a boarding school along with a couple of my siblings. And it was a um, a strict environment. Maybe it had to be uh, just to preserve order right? Because there's one set of house parents and all these kids. But to give you an idea of of that environment, there was a large poster board in the main area of the school with all of our names and then a list, exhaustive list of everything that was required of us, right? Make your bed, shine your shoes, um, you know, whatever, dishes, homework, play well with others, just a long list. So every time we would walk into the, to the school, um, we would see our names, see the list, and see if we got those check marks. And at the end of the week, if we did okay, we'd get a star. Um, and somewhere along the way, I began to think that's probably how God is with us, how we find acceptance with him, that we keep a list, right? I knew that that somewhere in here, faith and coming to Jesus and asking Jesus into my heart, I mean, I was seven years old, right, um, is part of the equation. But the majority of what we were taught was keep this list, right, and you get the star. 
And I thought that's probably how it works with God. And in my early years, I got my share of stars. Uh, I got some pats on the back. But later on, in my late teen years, uh, in particularly in my early 20s, uh, the wheels began to fall off. And there were sin patterns that I could not overcome. And honestly, I didn't want to overcome them. Uh, it was a powerlessness. Um, it was just a deadness. And much of that list that we just read began to characterize my life. Paul said the same thing to the Colossians, talking about adding to faith in Christ, human commands and teachings. He said this, such regulations, and he was talking about things like don't taste, don't touch, don't handle. Such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, and their harsh treatment of the body, but get this, but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. That list is impressive. It just doesn't have any power. It cannot aid us in a fight against the flesh, and it does not have the life to produce what God intends. Last week, Tony spoke about our lifelong struggle between the flesh and the spirit. In the passage before us today, Paul is now listing manifestations of both. He's going to list the evidences and manifestations of the flesh, but also the manifestations of the spirit. And I think he does this to add force to the exhortation he gives in verse 13. You can read it with me of chapter 5. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but rather through love serve one another. So as we look at the text together, I'd like to suggest maybe three ways to view this. First, a solemn warning. Then a necessary reminder. And finally, a compelling call. First, notice that Paul says this is a list that determines whether or not we belong to Christ. And Jesus said the same thing in Matthew 7. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. So this is the list that Paul gives. And there are similar lists in Romans chapter 1. There's another one in, Gal uh, in, in Colossians chapter 3. And all three of these lists begin with the same, the same thing. Uh, in this list, it's sexual sin. From some of his other letters, we gather that this must have been rampant in the Gentile world and part of their pagan worship. So he addressed it everywhere he went very carefully. But look at our culture. Haven't we gone mad? Sex has been elevated 
to the supreme place of identity, purpose, fulfillment, and it just cannot bear up under the weight of such idolatry. Entire cultures crumble when that happens. Only God who created us in his image, male and female, can frame our sexuality to be what he intended, something beautiful and holy, reflecting the covenantal intimacy for which we're made. Anything outside of his boundaries, anything outside of his definitions is destructive, whether it's public or private. Think about Paul's list in Romans 1. Remember that decline into depravity? Beginning at verse 24, he says, Therefore God gave them over. Think about that for a second. Is that terrifying? God gave them over in the sinful desire of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading, that's dehumanizing, of their bodies with one another. Now, this sin is enslaving and it's a violation of God's heart, his ways, and his will. Paul goes on in his list to sins of the soul, idolatry, sorcery. Philip Ryken in his commentary on Galatians says, idolatry is attempting to find our security and identity in anything or anyone besides the one true God. And sorcery, while well, that word is the root of our word pharmacy, really drugs. And I wonder where the idolatry is in all of that. This is now above my pay grade. I'm not a counselor. But when we play God with our lives and self-medicate or escape through substance abuse, then Paul's list goes on to social and relational sins, enmity, same word as enemy. It's this smoldering hatred which leads to strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries. That's factions, parties, cliques, what C.S. Lewis called the inner ring, right? And they're everywhere in society. They're educational rings and geographical rings. They're social and economic rings. There's probably music rings in there somewhere. And the only fulfillment you have in being in the ring is knowing that you're in and someone else is out. All these rings, it's factions. And Christ alone breaks those and shatters those. Dissensions, divisions, envy. This soul shriveling, self-centered craving that doesn't want to win necessarily. It just doesn't want you to win either, right? Have you felt that? Then Paul says drunkenness and orgies, calls them the works of darkness in Romans chapter 13. Here's the warning. Here's the warning. Those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. There's no wiggle room. <laughs> he doesn't mince words. Those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And to help us understand that word do, because maybe that's a question popping up in your mind, is 1 John 3, 9. Listen to this. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born 
of God. So the question is this, as we read the list as Paul intends, the question is, is this the trajectory of my life? Is this the, the, the sum, the category of my life? And if it is, then we have no grounds for confidence. Our only hope is to cast ourselves upon the mercy of God and repent. So this list that Paul gives is a warning, but I think it's also meant to stir up repentance because as believers, the flesh is still with us, right? Romans 6, 6 talks about we, have, we know that our old man or the flesh was crucified so that the body of sin might be done away with. And so we know that it is crucified with Christ, but as the Westminster Confession says, there are still some remnants that hang on, some dregs that trouble us and harass us and hound us for the whole of our lives. As we read Paul's list, Maybe like me, you would breathe this prayer of saying, oh God, thank you. Thank you that in Christ, this is not the direction of my life. Thank you that you have transformed and are transforming me so that this is not what characterizes me. And in the same breath, you'd say, but I still see some of these things in me. Maybe not overtly, but are there thoughts, words, and actions that lead to such sins? And the world looks at us often and they cry, hypocrite. I mean, you profess to be followers of Christ, but we see stuff in your life as well. What's our answer? Our answer is what we're doing here this morning. In a few moments, we're going to stand and we're going to recite the Apostles' Creed and we're going to confess that we believe in the holy Catholic Church, the holy universal church. That's us. We're part of that. If Paul was writing a letter to us now, today, he could very well address it saying, to the holy and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. No, at Franklin, Tennessee, to the holy and faithful brothers in Christ at Franklin who are without blemish and free from accusation. And Martin Luther would add, but who are also covered with infirmities, sins, errors, and various offenses. So while we rejoice in the fact that we are God's holy people, we also acknowledge that sometimes we do the very things we hate. That the good that we want to do, we don't do. And so with Paul, we'd cry, oh, what a wretched man I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? And the answer comes, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. We just had a time of confession. That's the other answer to those who would cry hypocrites. And at the end of that passage in Romans 1 that gives that decline into depravity, Paul says this, although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do them, but they also, here's the word, approve 
of those who practice them. And in our confession, what we said in essence is, Father, we do not approve of this. We do not approve of these things even in our lives. At one time, we were friends with sin, but we war against it. We grieve when we fall under its influence, and we mourn that gap between who we are in Christ and what we do. And then I think there's another use for this list, if you will. I think it provides a reason to lovingly watch over one another. James 5, 19. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Do you love the word cover? Does that not bring to mind our Savior as he on the cross was uncovered for us so that we could be covered. And so King David would write in Psalm 32, blessed is the man whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. And knowing the corruption of our own hearts gives us a benevolent skepticism. I stole that phrase from Steve Brown. A benevolent skepticism about each other's hearts. We look at the list. It stirs up repentance. We see it in ourselves. And it gives us this sort of loving skepticism to say, I see it in you too a little bit. And so we lovingly care for one another. We humbly address in each other's lives when we see some wandering. We invite others to do that even in our own lives. We desire to bring them back from their wandering and to cover their sin and quietly celebrate God's restoring power. Well, I think that first point took me much longer than I anticipated, so we'll speed it up a little bit. The second one is a vital reminder. Ah, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things, there is no law. The reason is all of those actually fulfill the law. There are not nine fruits There's one fruit, and all of them are the expressions of love. So Paul could say in verse 14, the whole law is fulfilled in one word, love your neighbor as yourself. And to one degree or another, all of these are the natural and inevitable evidence that we belong to Christ. Some may wish to measure the Spirit's presence by other, you know, more exciting ways, more external ways. The Judaizers wanted to measure spirituality by how well they kept the law, and others did. But this is God's measure, the fruit of the Spirit. And it's something that we cannot create, although in my childhood, that's what I was taught you got to work on this, Steve. We've got a couple things missing here in this list. 
Some of this fruit is underdeveloped. You need to fertilize it a little bit and kind of get it working on this, right? I thought that it was something I had to do. Um, In the little village where we lived in Argentina, um, my father pastored a very small, poor church that was owned by the family that lived next door, some English folks, an English older couple. He had no teeth. He was quite severe, and I was afraid of him. And one day as I'm leaving church with my dad, I'm probably seven years old, I'm guessing, maybe about there, uh, we walked right by his front yard, and we heard this racket in the back of his property. And so my dad, thinking there was trouble, just walked in, and we went to the backyard, and there's Mr. Etherton, shirtless, sweating, veins popping, eyes bulging, wielding a machete, and slashing the bark of this tree, and yelling, bear fruit. I was traumatized. (laughs) Traumatized. And so my dad said, Mr. Etherton, what's going on? He said, this tree has never born fruit. I'm giving it one last chance. (laughs) And to a seven-year-old, you think, okay then. (laughs) This is how this works. Beware of machetes. But we cannot bear fruit of our own. We are the bad tree that Jesus talked about that cannot bear. Did I say bad fruit? We cannot bear good fruit on our own. Calvin writes, nothing but evil comes from the flesh. But neither can we imitate it. We can try. We can try to approximate a fruit-like tendencies in our lives. And from a distance, it might look pretty close, just like you go to the store and you see some of these, you know, little fruit sitting in baskets. And I asked Mary Jean, is that real? She goes, no, go touch it. It's hard as rock. It's not real. So it looks like it, but it's not. And we've lived in Franklin since 1982. And many visitors who have come to see us have commented, people in Franklin are so nice. They're loving. They're other-centered. There's a church on every corner. This is a Christian city. And we say to them, no, not really. Um, Don't confuse niceness with the fruit of the Spirit. One of those can be learned in charm school, right? Our parents teach us to do those things. But it is not the supernatural evidence of the presence of God's Spirit. It just isn't. Rather, the fruit of the Spirit is the manifestation of the life of God within us, and it plays itself out always in relationships. So we look at the works of the flesh and realize several of those, maybe eight or nine of them, are social, right? It's dragging people into our sin. It's sinning against people. It's damaging relationship. But the fruit of the Spirit is corporate. It isn't just my fruit and how I'm doing and measuring myself. Instead, it is what does this look like in the body of believers? And so I've been asking myself that question this week. In my relationship with my brothers and sisters... Where is the evidence 
of the supernatural presence of the Holy Spirit in this fruit. Not just neighborliness, not just niceness, not southern charm, because all that can be manufactured. But this only comes from the Spirit of God. Where do we see that? And I see it in you, in the giving away of your lives. We just had uh, a group of folks that went to Greece. Um, Some spend their entire life doing that in other countries. Giving your life away, that's love. I see it in the way that we relate to one another because we're an interesting group of people here. Um, In the world, outside of Christ, people get together in clubs. A club is where people get with other people who like what they do and they're similar, right? Easy to hang out with, clubs. This is the body of Christ. We didn't pick each other. God called us and chose us and brought us together, and there's going to be some rubs and some irritations, and there's going to be some offenses, And in all of that, in all of that, where there is genuine affection and love, that's the evidence of the Spirit of Christ. When we love someone that irritates us, and all of us are that irritating person to somebody, all of us. Some people have had the courage to tell me that I'm that irritating person, and I thank you for it. Or forgiveness. Because there are offenses, huge violations and offenses. And when there is forgiveness, and as Paul said in 1 Corinthians 13, keeping no record of wrongs, that's miraculous. That's the evidence of God's Spirit within us. Johnny Erickson Tata, who many of you know, um, in fact, 50 years ago this year, she had that accident, that diving accident that rendered her a quadriplegic. And I was at a conference and she was speaking. She was talking about one particular morning um, in bed, because think about it, for the last 50 years, she's had to have somebody get her up in the morning. She can't do it. And that particular morning, she was um, just bone-weary bone-weary, in pain, empty, nothing to offer, discouraged. And she heard the door open of her house and her maid friend, her nurse, nurse friend, coming in to help her. And she knew she had about 30 seconds before this friend walked through her door of the bedroom. And she didn't want to paste on a smile She didn't want to just, in her own energy and strength, try to drum up some kind of kindness. She did, I think, what we ought to do as believers. Confess, Jesus, I have nothing in this moment. I don't even have a smile for this friend. Could I borrow yours? And it's in those moments 
that the fruit of the Spirit is evidenced as we rely upon the Spirit to do what we cannot do on our own. And lastly, the compelling call to be what we are, to walk in what we have received. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Because of what Christ has done for us and in us, and here's the list that I just got right out of Galatians, what has He done for us? Christ gave Himself for our sins to deliver us from this present evil age. God called you in the grace of Christ. He gave you the promised Spirit. You've been justified by faith. You've received adoption as sons and daughters. Christ has set you free. You belong to Christ. You live by the Spirit. Because of what Christ has done for us and in us, we are called to do something. But here's the thrilling part and the relieving part. We are called to do something in someone else's power. We are called to crucify the flesh. Theologians call it mortification. I checked with Tony on that, and he verified that's, what, that's indeed true. They call it mortification, that lifelong process of putting to death the desires of the sinful nature. But the only way that happens is by the Spirit. Romans 8.13 For if you live according to the sinful nature, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. John Owen has a classic work. I don't know what the original was called, but the version I have is called Sin and Temptation. In it, he writes this, Mortification based on human strength and carried out with man-made schemes. Right? Have we done that? Always ends in self-righteousness. This is the essence and the substance of all false religions in the world. Instead, his two headings under the chapter, the practice of mortification. So he writes a whole chapter on how are we going to do that. Here are the two headings. One of them is trust in the sufficiency of Christ. And the other is seek the Holy Spirit for the mortification of sin. In this struggle against sin, trust the sufficiency of Christ. It's nothing that we can do on our own. If by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live and seek the Spirit. So crucify the flesh, mortification, and finally keep in step with the Spirit. If we live by the Spirit, this is verse 25, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. I think John Owen is helpful here again. There's one way to read this that almost seems an uncertainty, right? If you do this, then maybe you'll get to do this, right? Or it can be sort of, um, you know, a bit of a command saying, all right, get going on this now. Do this or else. But instead, John Owen says that this is a connection between the means and the end. And what he's saying is, God has appointed the means, 
living in the Spirit, if you live in the Spirit, if you have come alive in the Spirit, right, then keep in step. God has provided the means to do what it is that He's called us to do. Last week, um, Tony talked about being um, to live by the Spirit. No, he talked about, sorry, Tony, but he talked about being led by the Spirit and walking in the Spirit. This passage is keeping in step with the Spirit. The Christian life is a pilgrimage. It's walking. It's being led. It's keeping in step. It's a foot journey. It's a slow journey. It's one foot in front of the other. And it's a struggle. It's perilous. It's dangerous. The hymn writer said, Through many dangers, toils, and snares... I have already come. Philip Ryken, in that commentary on Galatians, causes us to pause and think about that word crucify. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified. And to, and to those in Paul's day, that would be a very familiar form of capital punishment. They would know what that looked like. And Philip Ryken says crucifixion was painful, extremely painful. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh. It's painful. He said it was slow, agonizingly slow. It lasts the length of this pilgrimage that we're on. But he also said it's certain. No one ever came down off the cross alive. (laughs) It was certain. Romans 8.29 For those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. There is certainty that the flesh will be done with one day. It is God's own purpose. We have been predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his Son, For those God predestined, he also called, and those he called, he also justified, and those he justified, he also glorified. It is a sure thing, and it is by the power of his Spirit that the flesh is crucified and that the fruit is evidenced. And those of us who belong to Christ, those of us, I love how Paul puts it, who are known by God, made alive by the Spirit, have all that we need for life and godliness. On this journey, as God reforms and shapes us into His own character, by His grace, for His glory, the one who calls you is faithful, and He will do it. Let's pray. Father, thank you for uh, just the power of your word. And I would ask, Lord, that um, you would strengthen us by your spirit to hear you, to know what you're saying to us, to believe it, and then to fully grasp the spirit's power in this journey. 
for your glory. In Christ's name, amen.